0: Welcome to the brownstein hyatt farber Shrek podcast series. As the first month of Donald Trump's presidency comes to an end, Brownstein-Hyatt-Farber-Schreck's most recent podcast series provides updates on the new administration's impact on crucial issues facing businesses. Brownstein's strategic advisor, Senator Mark Begich, moderates bipartisan discussions with the firm's Washington, D.C. policy professionals and attorneys on tax and trade, financial services, immigration, energy, and healthcare. In this episode, policy director Kate McCandless and of counsel Peter Goodlow discuss the continuously changing environment of repeal and replace, the reconciliation bill, impacts on Medicaid, and tax reform. Hi, this is Mark Begich,
1: former senator from Alaska. I'm a strategic advisor for Brownstein, and we're bringing you a series of podcasts on many of the issues that Congress will be dealing with. And not only will you hear about uh, the big topics, but what's happening behind the scenes and probably some information you haven't heard yet. So we're excited to bring these to you. We're here for a Brownstein podcast on health care, and we're joined by... Two members of the Brownstein team that are well versed in the healthcare arena and what's going on by the minute, literally. First is Kate McCandless, uh, has represented healthcare corporations and trade associations before executive branch agencies such as the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the Veterans Administration, and before Congress on topics including the creation and implementation of the Affordable Care Act to 2012 reauthorization of the Prescription Drug Users Fee Act. The Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act, biosimilar issues. Look at that, I'm getting good on these healthcare issues. Mm-hmm. Medicare, Medicaid matters, medical research funding, disease specific matters, and the list goes on and on. We're also joined by Peter Goodlow uh, of Council, provides veteran counsel to his clients on health-related public policy issues. Peter brings over 30 years of experience in the life sciences and public health fields, including 23 years of developing policy and legislation as an attorney for the U.S. House of Representatives. In the House, he was with the Office of Legislative Counsel for many years and then was with the Home Energy House Energy and Commerce Committee, in his tenure, Peter was deeply involved in developing policy and legislation relating to the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Drug Enforcement Administration, and other health-related issues and agencies. So that gives you a little sense of who we have here today on our podcast, and there's no question well-versed. Now, the thing about health care, every minute... And today it is Thursday, February 16th. And I say that because the only podcast we've actually dated and a time, because literally every minute things are changing uh, very rapidly. And the big question, and we can start with this kind of an overview, maybe set the stage. I mean, you hear people talk about repeal, then it was replace. Now it's repair. Maybe it's remove. I don't know what R word they're going to come up with next. But what is really the state of affairs right now with health care, Affordable Care Act, and this big issue that is not simple? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Kate, and, and you know, give a where are we? Sure. We don't know. It's moving very <laughs> rapidly.
2: Well, it's it's interesting. Things are moving rapidly, and at the same time, they're moving much more slowly than I think we had anticipated six weeks ago. Uh, Our first conversations about repeal and replace were relatively definitive. We had a reconciliation bill that had already passed the House and the Senate in 2015, 2016. And we were going to move that piece of legislation forward with uh, a handful of reforms that had been discussed at a very high level for six years uh, since the implementation of the ACA. That plan quickly disintegrated. There are many factions uh, within the House and the Senate who have various ideas on what specifically the replace part of repeal and replace should look like. And so I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to brand it right here on this podcast. I think we should call it repeal and react, because that seems (laughs) to be the R word. I knew there
1: was another R word. I I
2: think that's the R word that we're using right now. Um, There are multiple proposals out there that would, in various aspects of, of the AC, replace uh, certain measures. Uh, none of them are the exact same, although many of them have you know, similar components. But I think that in terms of where we are on February 16th, although the House today uh, has revealed a plan to replace the ACA, I think we're far from uh, coming to, to one specific agreement.
1: And are all these at this point generated by uh, House or Senate majority members? Most of these larger, kind of comprehensive replacements at this point?
2: Is that what you're seeing? Right. For the most part, obviously, the majority, the Republicans in the House and the Senate... Uh, are, are interested in replacing the ACA. The Democrats are dug in very deeply. And early on, there were conversations that there are Democrats, particularly in the Senate, who will be up for uh, re-election in 2018, 10 of them in states where Trump actually won that state. And so they are in precarious uh, political positions. There were conversations that perhaps these Democrats would get on board with some sort of a replace effort. Uh, and and that effort would probably be more around replace pair, to your other R word, Um, but uh, those conversations have have rapidly declined, and and there are not many Democrats right now that are talking about participating with the uh, Republicans on the replace efforts.
1: Let me ask, uh, Peter, your question. So we now have a new secretary that's been confirmed, uh, Tom Price. Do you think... You know, and again, stuff has been developing literally as we're sitting here. Um, Do you think he brings in, you know, there's, as Kate described, all these different plans that are kind of out there. Do you think he brings in the ability to say, okay, here's where we need to bring it all together? Or is he do you think now it's kind of a sideline? Let Congress do it and then see what happens. Or where do you think he because he was a big player in in Congress in his views on health care. And people assume, I think. Uh, right or wrong, that because of his past position, now in administration, he'll be a bigger player now. But is, are we seeing that yet? I know it's only been a few days since his confirmation, but the way it works in Washington these days, four days, five days could be a lifetime of activity.
3: Well, yes. Well, he's already taken action uh, as a member of the executive branch in that uh, yesterday CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, issued a proposed rule to make some changes to try
1: to shore up uh, the insurance industry. Uh, today, and shore up the industry because of the catastrophic, uh, the, the high expense of patients and what was... Thought to be arranged in the past, yes. or ACA, right?
3: They, they made a series of uh, of, of, of proposals uh, that are somewhat technical in nature. I don't think we'll go into them now. But the but the policy is is in in the macro sense they they recognize the industry needs uh, the industry needs help, and they're trying to uh, shore it up. They're going to, in a sense, they're going to have to save the Affordable Care Act before they can uh, repeal and replace it because they're all quite aware that there are many people who are relying on it, and I think everyone has concerns about taking people who currently have care and dumping them
1: off of it. And so so. Secretary Price, do you think by that regulation he's sending a signal that he's going to be active in this at a level that people are expecting, or is he going to kind of how does he play the role, I guess? Because in the last administration, the secretaries were very active, uh, not necessarily drafting legislation, but in laying out what the guidelines that the administration wanted. At least in the implementation of it, I should say
3: well, he was only confirmed a week ago, and yeah. I imagine that's a long
1: time around here right now, and, uh,
3: <laughs> and who knows how many discussions he's had uh, with the president and it 's one thing to, to be the chair of the budget committee in which you 're in sort of policy making role, and you can be very uh, aggressive and he 's had his own plan like paul ryan 's plan, it tends to revolve around uh, uh, tax credits and health savings accounts and so forth. But, uh, but now he's in a different role, and, and he has to coordinate with the president, and he seems to be taking, starting up uh, slowly. Like he was on the Hill today. Um, he was not so much issuing policy prescriptions as delivering the message that uh, what the White House wants is to get uh, repeal and replacement uh, in the same bill on the same day. And that's what the White
1: House wants, wants to get. And so uh, I'm thinking as you're saying that as a former senator, that that's a difficult task. Well, it is. And it's so simple, really, when you think about it, just from, you know, the listeners out there may say, well, why not? And why not? Well, it is complicated because uh, the
3: Republicans have the greatest flexibility if they can put provisions in the, in the budget bill, the, the so-called reconciliation bill, the, the main point there being that, they, that it can pass in the Senate without threat of filibuster. A simple majority can pass. But, uh, but by nature, this type of budget bill can't be used for everything. Essentially, because of the bird rule, you have to spend money or save money and, and not everything you'd want to do in terms of health care So it's reform. policy. Just general policy, pure policy, and it it doesn't uh, have a clear budget effect, and so it can be uh, struck by the by the uh, bird rule, which is why legislation has to go through this uh, so-called bird bath in the Senate, Um, and so the reconciliation bill from last Congress, uh, you know, did uh, go through the bird bath and made it to the president's desk and was, of course, vetoed. So. and a lot of people, the House Freedom Caucus has lately been emphasizing they want to see last year's reconciliation bill. As mm, the, this year's. Right. Yeah. And, of course, the, the problem with that uh, is uh, one thing, for example, is that the last year's reconciliation bill would uh, repeal the Medicaid expansion.
1: And that's a big problem. Which governors across the country, Republican and Democrat, have problems with that. Is that a fair statement?
3: Exactly. A number of Republican governors have told uh, the the congressional Republicans, uh, we like our expansion. And then it gets complicated in other ways because uh, there's a lot of talk about a Medicaid block grant. Uh, There hasn't been many details on that. But. One thing that 's clear it would no longer be as under current law an open ended entitlement under current law, if someone shows up, they meet the eligibility requirement, then they are entitled to services and it 's not a matter of you know there's a there 's a dollar dollar a cap. Or, yeah. the, the whole point of a, of a, a block grant is to create a cap and uh, either at the individual level or at the the, the amount of the uh, federal grant to the state and give governors discretion, but then we have the issue of all the Republican governors who did not accept the Medicaid expansion. And if we just sort of freeze the current budget situation Medicaid wise, do the, there's concern that the the states that did not take the expansion get, get penalized in some way? So there are just so many different uh, differing parts and, and very complicated. Do you
1: think? Let me ask. Um Kate, you kind of mentioned this, you know, when we talked about this several weeks ago, you know, we saw a path. We saw the the president and his position. Do you think the the, the president's President Trump's position on health care? Has been, has changed at all, or is it the same line? Or what, is there changes that are occurring there that are also creating ripple effects in Congress? Or is there inconsistencies on his position? I mean, he's been basically repair or replace and uh, repeal and replace is kind of what he said during the campaign. But do you think that's changed at all?
2: And then he went on television and said it might be next year. And then he came back and sends Tom Price to the hill saying, "No, no, no, we want it all in the same bill, and we want it today."
1: For Congress, it's problematic when you have these mixed. Especially if it's your party in the presidency and you're in the leadership you get these mixed signals, what's the priority?
2: Talk- and they're certainly looking to the White House. I think that many congressional Republicans are looking to uh, Secretary Price to lead on this, although I will say he was very clear in his confirmation hearings that transitioning from chairman of the Budget Committee to the secretary of HHS means that he's going to leave his legislative writing pen uh, at home, so to speak. Uh, so I don't think that they will get anything from him in terms of legislative language. They might get uh, some direction, uh, which, you know, they can exchange for direction from the White House. But I would say that you know, his position has been relatively consistent. The problem is it's been somewhat thin. He has very few concrete uh, policy ideas around replacing the ACA. Many of them, almost all of them, appear in the various proposals that Pete mentioned uh, that are out there for replacing you know, uh uh, increasing the utilization of of HSAs and selling insurance across state lines and things that, you know, tend to be bread and butter pre- can, for pre-existing, pre-existing conditions in age 26. 20, yeah. Exactly. But, um, you know, unfortunately, those three or four or five policies don't completely replace the ACA. Right. So there's a lot of wilderness out there that people are wandering around in trying to figure out. What the White House wants, and uh, there hasn't been a lot of direct signals. Do
1: you, do you think, uh, for either one of you, you know, the insurers are a big player, obviously, in the hospitals and the patient groups. You know, there's kind of like these constituency groups out there. Do you think they really? Um, is there a confusion that to the point where they're not sure where to go, or do you think they? Some of these groups are just starting to carve out their concern and hold tight. Because they're not sure where it all lays. What, what's the, I mean, you think about those are the groups that at the end of the day really have a lot of influence on how that replace or repair or what was the word you used? Uh,
2: react. React, <laughs> how
1: people react, right? So, wh- what's your sense? I mean, we, we, you know, in Brownstein, we have a, a lot of clients around the healthcare area. And a lot of I'm sure you're getting inundated with like what's happening. Like today I'm guarantee you're probably getting after this press conference I saw you're going to get calls about what does this mean for us. Are you what are you seeing in that arena? What's what's the sense out there? And then what should they be looking toward us as a firm to give what should we be doing to assist to make sure they're getting what the information they need? Well you Peter. mentioned hospitals.
3: There are People who, because of the Affordable Care Act, have turned out uh, to, to be winners in a sense—people um, and, and institutions—and hospitals are in better shape than they used to be because they had such uh, uh, uncompensated care rates, and now uh, that's that's much reduced. And so there's there's a sense of not wanting to turn uh, winners uh, in, into losers. And so anybody who's been a winner. Uh, under the Affordable Care Act, to, to any extent, is, is going to want to um, to protect what they have. And so that's why they might come to a firm like Brownstein is, mm-hmm. is to help uh, make the case, make the public policy argument why uh, that the, the gains they've made should not be reversed.
2: But I think that, you know, interestingly enough, the majority of the clients that we advise that were very active in uh, the creation of the ACA and have subsequently been very active in all of the pieces of implementation of the policies. There's this foregone conclusion almost that ACA will be repealed, and there seems to be at least from the majority of the industries that we advise, there, there's there's not as much there's not as much fighting for the protections as much or as as much as i guess there are conversations around making sure that whatever the repeal and then the repair package ends up looking like that there's some equity with regard to the acknowledgement of what they are giving up um, so it i so would it say that it's a
1: kind of an equalizing treatment it
2: is and and it feels like that um, f- Fighting The repeal effort uh, seems to be a lost cause for many, many people. They feel like that this is a foregone conclusion. Uh, and I would argue that it's, it's not. And we are seeing, uh, you know, pieces of it unravel right before our eyes. But there doesn't seem to be the same level of enthusiasm for, um, you know, fighting off the repeal as there is for accepting repeal for what it is and then fighting for, you know, maintaining some sort of a stability in the replace effort.
1: Is is there, um, I guess, when you think about repeal and that effort and all these other pieces, and, you know, we've talked about budget reconciliation, but as we talked earlier on some other podcasts, like tax policy is starting to Raise its head as a, as a big issue. And of course, when you look at uh, ACA, there's many provisions tax related in some way or another. We talked about one earlier about employers and the deductibility of their health care costs and so forth. All that plays into this. And it may not play in the ACA repeal, but it may play in another stream of activity. And the question is how do these kind of You know, you think of these big issues, if they're going to start talking about tax reform, it seems like health care will bleed into that. And if that bleeds in, then in in an indirect way, we're going to be doing reform or, you know, repair or whatever it might be called, potentially through a tax bill, too. Is that, Peter? Health care reform, the original plan
3: anyway, has been for health care reform to take place. In the budget bill, the reconciliation bill that's for the current fiscal year 2017, and tax reform is supposed to take place in uh, when we start doing the 2018 budget and have a 2018 reconciliation bill. And so, but as you say, there are many tax aspects to to to, uh, the Affordable Care Act, and so those will likely get done uh, in the health care. And there's going to have to be a trade-off uh, be- between savings and, and cost, and the um, and so the tax provisions that relate to the Affordable Care Act probably need to be in, in the health care reform package. Uh, the tax reform that's down the road is more the, the, the big picture. You know, what what should the fundamental uh, philosophical approach of our taxing, taxing tax
1: system be, right. and so forth? So uh, so maybe a small piece, but still have a, a bump up against. Healthcare, Yes, a- a- absolutely.
2: Yes, so. I, I mean, I think there are going to be overlaps. I think that um, initially, at least on the House side, there was a lot of interest in making sure that the tax-related provisions of ACA were dealt with before we entered into whatever tax reform season looks like uh, so that the baseline would, would reflect that. I'm not sure that the Senate ever fully bought into that, but it certainly was the position of the House. But, you know, as Pete mentioned, the, the plan all along was to move The ACA repeal and replace efforts through the 2017 budget reconciliation process, and then we would move to 2018, where we would uh, have another uh, budget reconciliation that would require a vote, and, and that simple majority would be used for tax reform. And I think generally, uh, and this is something that we're advising all clients on here at Brownstein, not just our health clients or our clients who specifically come to us for tax-related issues, but you know, taking a step back and helping all of our clients see how all of these pieces fit together. Uh, there seems to be some general unrest as we sit here to talk about health care repeal and replace on the reconciliation Uh, some general unrest within the the Republican caucus about whether or not repeal and replace should have been first. Um, Now, you can't really put the genie back in the bottle at this point. Yeah, it's already –
1: the (laughs) gate is open. But
2: but I think there are are many members who feel like that passing a 2017 budget, even knowing that we were going to use it to repeal the ACA, which is the holy grail of, you know, Republican policy for the last several years – Was a difficult task, Uh, even even knowing that the numbers weren't necessarily real and reflective of our actual budgets, knowing that we just had to get the budget so that we could get the reconciliation package so that we could get to a repeal effort was a difficult task. And I think that members are starting to realize that doing that again for 2018 uh, in a situation where right now we don't have a budget from the White House for 2018, we don't have the 302A and B numbers, we don't have the idea that uh, – we don't have any direction from uh, from the White House about what, what those budget numbers are going to be, and then we can't wrestle with them in Congress so that we can get a budget, so then we can get reconciliation instructions. I think the monumental task of all of this is starting to hit people. And frankly, I, I think the core constituency of the Republican Party is saying to members, you've got to do tax reform. That's what we sent you here to do. And so it will be interesting as we move forward. Like I said, we're counseling clients uh, as to the interplay of these and and many other issues. Uh, It'll be interesting as we move forward to see whether we end up in a situation where all of these issues converge, potentially in one single apocalyptic moment.
1: Well, let me ask you uh and. Peter, you
3: about to say something? Yes. I was yes. going to say we're we're talking about 2017 and 2018 reconciliation bills, but it's it's actually even much harder than that because as we go into the 2018 budget, reconciliation is just gonna be a subset of the overall budget. We had to deal with the discretionary budget as well. And so just doing the normal budget battles that would take place completely independent of Big-picture health care reform and, and tax reform could be very difficult all on its own. So,
1: so you think about, and, and we'll end on this kind of broad scope on health care in a second here, and then I'd love I want to move into a, uh, another subject matter of drugs and prescription drugs pricing. That seems to be bubbling up. But before we do that, I want to, if, if you look at the committees of jurisdiction and you look at the issues of health care, and you look at, you know, repeal and all these issues, are there anything that might be something that's a smaller version of something in health care that someone might say, you know what, we can get our arms around, fill in the blank, and Democrats might support it, Republicans might support it. Is there anything like that that's hanging out there, or is it just so wrapped up into now kind of the reverse of what the Democrats went through, which was... Uh, we're passing ACA, it's going to be partisan. Now it's repeal, it's going to be partisan, and therefore neither shall meet. Is there anything that's kind of out there that, if you know, you're in the healthcare arena, you can say, oh, this is something that we can get our arms around because there'll be some unification on it or bipartisanship or whatever we want to call it today. Is there, maybe there's not. Maybe there's one of those that's just a clear divide.
2: No, I. you know, I think it's interesting. You. You kind of, this... <laughs> In in another situation, this would be a great transition. I think that there are enough, both Republicans and Democrats, in sort of populist positions right now that feel that the... Time is right to deal with the price of prescription drugs. I think that um, you, we we could also point to the fact that there are statutory requirements on certain programs that have to be reauthorized this year. So, for example, the the um, user fee acts at, at the FDA or the uh, CHIP program, the Children's Insurance Program. So there are things. So that they'll will get their
1: arms and, around those and they'll move those
2: exactly. And you know, I don't think there there are too many questions around those. Although. You know,
1: you never know never say
2: never um, but i do think from a populist position uh, you know the the idea that the, the cost of prescription drugs in this country have skyrocketed, and they are in some ways out of control or not reflective of reality or not reflective of investment, uh, is something that is resonating both on the right and on the left. And so I think that uh, there are there are a multitude of proposals out there to deal with this issue from various angles, and I think that you could see that becoming something that both Republicans and Democrats could wrap their arms around.
1: Well, we're going to do a special podcast on drug pricing, so those that are listening, now thank you for listening to to our healthcare podcast. Keep your ears open. There's another one coming on drug pricing.
0: Stay
2: tuned.
1: Thank you both for being here on the healthcare issue.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.